today, we're going to start our journey through the book of James. And for the next couple months, we'll be uh, walking through chunk by chunk uh, this epistle or letter. Um, and uh, so this morning is really just going to be an introduction to the book and to the series. Uh, I'm just going to do some good old-fashioned Bible teaching today. And uh, we're not going to get real far into the text as much as we're going to try to understand the context. So who was this letter written by? Who was it written to? What was it written for? And we'll look at just a couple of the main themes that we'll be diving into over the next couple months. So here we go. Book of James, chapter 1, verse 1, if you've got it. Um, That's where we will be. James, chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord, Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. So uh, that's it for now. You think I can do 40 minutes on that? Oh yeah, you better believe it. So, um, this letter begins like many other letters in Scripture. Um, he identifies himself as the author and as a servant of, of God and of Christ. And then he greets, um, in his language, the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. James is writing from the city of Jerusalem. And it's kind of his way of dressing, addressing the believing Jewish people that are outside of Jerusalem now. And so the Messianic Jews who are living outside of the land of Israel. So he identifies himself as author. This is his original audience, the Jews spread across the world. And... Uh, and a simple greeting. And so let me just start uh, by panning out a little bit and and trying to help us understand where James fits in within the Bible. So in the New Testament, we have 27 books. Um, Each each book is a different type of genre, excuse me. And so it starts with five historical books, the four Gospels and then the Book of Acts. And then there's a series of letters, 22 letters that are written from early church leaders to their various uh, communities and uh, individuals around the time. And so um, the first 13 of those letters after the book of Acts are written all by the Apostle Paul. Uh, They're known as the Pauline epistles. And then there's nine more letters after that. So from Romans uh, all the way to Philemon, those are the Pauline epistles. And then after that, we have nine more letters that are called the general epistles, meaning they're written by other guys other than Paul. And so we start with Hebrew and go through the book book of Revelation. Um, We don't know who wrote Hebrews, but we do know John authored uh, the letter of Revelation to to the seven churches. And so what's really cool is that um, within the general epistles of these nine letters, two of them were written by guys who were brothers of Jesus, the books of Jude and James, both written by Jesus's brothers. And so this is an interesting thing even to think about. They don't get a lot of play, but New Testament authors constantly or several times are referring to Jesus' brothers, his uh, half-brothers, if, if we want to get technical, right? They had the same mom, but not necessarily the same dad. And uh, so one of the places is in Mark chapter 6. It says, Jesus left there and went to be in his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What is this wisdom that's been given him? And where, what are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? So, um, so interesting to think about Jesus growing up with at least four brothers and at least a couple of sisters, and it's just such a fascinating idea, right? Like, I'm guessing there were times where it was a little rough, 
having Jesus as a big brother, right? Like, why can't you be more like your brother? I'm, I'm assuming Mary started the WWJD thing a long time, and it was kind of annoying. And it's like, why doesn't Jesus have to go to swimming lessons? But come on, come on. But the fascinating thing um, is that even growing up with him, his brothers didn't understand what he was doing with his ministry. They seemed to think that he was like making a run for office or trying to get a, um, his own reality show or something like that. They didn't understand what he was doing. So in the passage that Medell read for us in John chapter 7, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one wants to become a Public, no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. So interesting. So early on in his ministry, Jesus' own brothers, including James, didn't understand what was going on. But now, somewhere between probably the years 40 and 60 AD, sometime between Jesus' death around 33 AD and James' death around 62 AD, James has not only come to faith in Christ and not only become a believer, but he's also become a pastor and a prominent leader within uh, the early church movement. And so once Peter had moved on from Jerusalem to travel to other parts of the world, James is the one who assumed the position of responsibility for the mother church in Jerusalem, the very first Christian church. And so now for 20 or 30 years, he's been radically serving his brother Jesus and worshiping his brother Jesus as God. And even further than this, we have record from history that James ends up being martyred for his faith. James identifies himself in this letter as a servant of God and as the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's a fascinating thing. First of all, at a theological level, he makes no distinction or holds, there's no tension or contradiction in James's theology between worshiping or serving God and worshiping or serving Jesus. They are one and the same. And so to his Jewish audience, he is saying that <clears throat> the way we love and serve God is through loving and serving Christ. If you want to serve God with your life, you do that by serving Jesus. So interesting theologically. And then secondly, from a human perspective, that again, this is his brother, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, my brother. Can you imagine coming to a place of conviction that the dude you shared bunk beds with is actually the God of the universe? I mean, this is an incredible thing. So James goes from being an unbeliever, not only to a passionate follower of Christ and a pastor in the church, but eventually he is even martyred for Christ's name. So Eusebius, the, Eusebius, the fourth century church historian, writes, to the scribes and Pharisees' dismay, James boldly testified that Christ himself sitteth in heaven and at the right hand of the great power and shall come on clouds of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees said to themselves, we have not done well in, producing, in procuring this testimony to Jesus, but let us go up and throw him down that they may be afraid and not believe in him. So they threw down the just man, James, and began to stone him, for he was not killed by the fall, 
But he turned and kneeled down and listened to this. He said, I beseech thee, Lord, God our Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That sounds familiar, right? James goes from being a skeptic to a passionate follower of Jesus, whose entire life and death was filled with Christ. So something must have happened along the way, right? We know it wasn't from growing up with Jesus or from even witnessing some of his miracles and teachings. So what was it that eventually opened James' eyes to see that his brother was actually the Son of God? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12 and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then, 1 Corinthians 15, 7, he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. So James was there and had seen his brother crucified and buried in the ground. And then a few days later, the tomb is empty and Jesus was back. So it was Christ's resurrection from the dead that sealed the deal for James. And it was then that he finally understood the significance of what Jesus' life and ministry was all about. And from there, he devotes the rest of his life to serving Christ, his brother, as God. And so one of the things that's so fun about diving into the book of James and the thing I'm excited about this summer is that so much of our understanding about Christ and Christianity has been shaped by the Pauline epistles. Um, and, And while I believe Paul knew and understood the heart of Christ better than anyone who's ever lived, he actually never met Jesus in person, interesting enough. Um, He obviously had encounters with Jesus throughout his life, but by the time Jesus had ascended, uh, Paul was not yet uh, in the story. And so this doesn't make Paul's writing any less authoritative or inspired or important for us, but it's fun to read a book like James and know that this is a guy who knew Jesus his entire life. And he has come to a place where he worships his brother as God. So it's going to be uh, kind of a fun and different perspective than a lot of the epistles that we have. And so uh, we'll spend about two months charging through. So I've uh, entitled the series Brothers and Sisters, as you can see. Um, You'll notice as you read through the five chapters of James, uh, the phrase brothers and sisters is used 14 or 15 times. So constantly, James is referring to his readers, his audience, as his brothers and sisters. So this uh, reveals something about how James understands the identity and the nature of Christ's church, that it's not primarily an institution or an organization or a building, but the church is a family, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. And church then isn't somewhere we go, but it's something we are. And it's a shared life and a shared mission that we are called to. And so that's what's, what's so cool to me is that James, who identifies himself as the brother of Christ, now calls you and me his brothers and sisters as well. So he's saying, my brother has become our brother. I have that, the access that I have, the relationship that I have, is now open to all of you that you're able to know and to relate to Jesus in the same way 
uh, as I do. So that's what's so beautiful about what we're going to do tonight at the river with the baptism. It's going to be a family reunion for our church, but it's also the place where we welcome new, fam- new family members into Christ's global church. And so baptism not only unites us with our local church community, but it unites us with this global historic family that goes back thousands of years now. Um, one of the highlights of my life was last year at summer camp. And uh, Jen and I had the opportunity to baptize our oldest daughter, Emma. Uh, she was 10 at the time, and she's grown up, heard, heard the gospel uh, in all different forms and in all different ways. But the thing that finally really got her heart was the idea that God wanted her to be part of his family. And so that started the journey for for us talking and preparing her for baptism. Uh, So what we had her do is write uh, to each of her four grandparents, Jen's parents and my parents, who are all believers. And she told them she wanted to get baptized and asked each of them for uh, their their favorite Bible verse. And so they all gave her their favorite favorite Bible verses. She wrote them in her journal. She memorized them. And uh, that's kind of how we got her... um, led up to baptism. And so when that day finally came, and we're standing there at Crescent Lake with a lot of you guys, as Jen and I are out in the water with her, uh, we looked at her and I said, Emma, we, you will always be our daughter, but today you're becoming our sister too. Right? Um, dad highlight of the year. And, uh, and there's something so fascinating about, yeah, the bond of family is significant and important, but this greater family, this greater story we are are invited into is even more important in naming us as those who are in Christ, more important than the name on the back of our jersey or whatever else. So, um, So that's what's... That's kind of my hope for this series, is that as a church, we would continue to learn what it means that we are a family and what it looks like to live uh, as brothers and sisters. So um, a few few weeks ago, if you were here, Michelle Jones came from Portland, and um, she preached that morning and then did a gospel culture forum in the afternoon on the subject of creativity and the gospel. And Michelle, before she became a pastor, had been a TV writer. And um, so she was kind of leading this conversation um, on how what she's learned in the world of TV, story, all that, um, has informed the way that she understands the gospel. And one of the things that she said that really stuck out to me was that all good TV shows are about a group of people trying to figure out how to be a family. And if it's true, if you think about it, obviously like the golden, you know, Nick at Night sitcoms were all set in the home with a biological family. But even going back the last 20, 30 years, starting with Seinfeld and Friends, and then obviously into things like The Office and Community and Parks and Rec and Arrested Development, all of them are all about a group of people trying to figure out what it means to be a family. What does it mean to share our lives with one another? What does it mean to deal with each other's stuff and baggage? How do we handle it when we hurt each other? How do we communicate with each other? How do we make decisions together? It would make sense that we have so many shows that are rooted in this journey because this is the human story. And even more specifically, this is the story of the church. And so as we study the book of James, it'll be important that we read it not just through an individual lens, not just thinking about what this 
um, might mean for me or how I should respond, but we are meant to be reading this through a communal or a familial lens. What is it that the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, is saying to us as a family, as brothers and sisters? How would we hear and receive this word in the plural? And so I think that's why James repeatedly, repeatedly reminds his readers it's not just to an individual, brothers and sisters. The gospel is about a family being born. And Christianity is a team sport, though it's never meant to be done alone. And so that's going to be one of the main themes of this letter. What does it mean to be brothers and sisters in Christ? What does it mean to be the people of God? And how do we live out our faith and identity in the world that we find ourselves in? Uh, another theme that we'll talk about is the, the idea of being wholly devoted to God or a life that's fully devoted uh, to Jesus. And so if you read through the, the book of James and you're familiar with the other parts of Scripture, you may notice that there's a lot of similarities, but primarily two sources that he draws from heavily. The first is the book of Proverbs. James has spent his entire life um, as a practicing Jew, immersed in the old, what we call the Old Testament, and Proverbs would have been something that was really central to his faith formation and his understanding of God. And so he writes in a lot of ways similar to how uh, the Proverbs are written which are kind of these short, punchy little one-liners that are memorable and easy to memorize. And it's not like there's one long argument like many of Paul's letters where he's unpacking a whole bunch of uh, stuff around one idea. James is kind of charging through with these little proverbial statements of little wisdom Yoda kind of nuggets, right? So um, that's one of his main influences, the book of Proverbs. The second influence is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, um, Almost every main idea that James puts forth is something that we find in Matthew 5 through 7, right? So James had been there as a follower of Jesus, uh, as the brother of Jesus, listening to that sermon, and now, 20, 30 years later, he's helping people to understand the relevance and the implications for Jesus' teachings uh, in a new time. And so, the goal that he's pushing forward towards in both kind of drawing from the Proverbs and the Sermon on the Mount is this idea of a life fully devoted to God. The words wholeness, completion, perfection, those kinds of words come up a lot. He's going that there's a goal to this, to this life with God, that there's a place that we're being led to where we're becoming more and more conformed to the image of Christ, where our life is on an you know, on ongoing basis being transformed. We're not the people that we used to be, but we're moving towards a wholeness, a completeness, a perfection. And so that's the goal of following Jesus in James's perspective. And so he's challenging his readers to listen to God's word and to obey it, to put it into practice, to love him and to love others with a consistency. Um, he's calling them to live in such a way where their actions line up with their words. I know this is really hard to believe, but there was a time when Christians had a reputation for being hypocrites. I know it's hard to imagine, but some Christians throughout history have at times not perfectly lived out the things that they say they believe, right? Crazy. I know we don't know what that's all about. Um, 
But this is exactly the kind of thing that obviously is a universal problem that we still face today. And this is the exact kind of thing that James is confronting. And he's coming out, not in a judgmental way, but again, in the form of a sage, saying there is wisdom in pursuing a life of congruence. There's wisdom in pursuing a life where your actions line up with your beliefs and line up with your words. So he's not coming at it from a place of judgment or threat or fear. He's saying it's the wise way to live. It's the better way to live. And so um, this is where it's so important to understand that this is a book of wisdom. Um, Because James confronts hypocrisy so hard that at times it feels like he has a low view of grace. At times it feels like he's saying to be a Christian is to do all the Christian stuff, right? There are times where he comes at this so hard where it's too harsh, it's too legalistic, it's too works-based, people would say. Martin Luther, the reformer, even famously questioned whether James belonged in the Bible at all because it seemed at times opposed to the gospel that we are saved by grace through faith, not by any works of our own. And so again, when we read those places in James and really this whole letter, the important thing is to remember it's not a theology book, it's a wisdom book. And like the book of Proverbs, the goal of James isn't to present any new theological ideas. He actually doesn't. He doesn't bring forth any new theological ideas. Rather, what he wants to do is get up in your business and challenge the way you're living. And he uses the form of wisdom or Proverbs to do that. So uh, we have, you know, cultural proverbs like the early bird catches the worm, right? That's a proverb meaning it's a way or paradigm that would help us think uh, and live well. It's not actually like a scientific fact or it's not a prophetic promise that that bird, because he's early, is guaranteed a worm. It's just saying this is kind of the way the world works, right? This is a wise way to go about living. And as we come to James, we need to read him that way too. He's not saying this is an absolute promise from God. He's just saying, um, here's a bit of sage wisdom to help you navigate your journey of following Jesus and learning to live well. So does that make sense? We'll get to that more over the next few weeks. Um, But one scholar puts it this way, that James represents not teaching about Jesus, but the teaching of Jesus applied to a new situation. So unlike Paul's letters, James isn't really trying to do theology about Christ or Christianity. He's simply reapplying or repurposing, rephrasing the words, the teaching, and the message of Jesus himself to a group of people now that are finding themselves living in a new world. And so, um, interesting enough, James actually only mentions Jesus by name twice in this entire letter, and we've already read one of them in the first verse. And so um, it's a letter about Jesus, but not in the sense that we're used to reading. It's about what does it look like to take what Jesus has said and what Jesus has done and actually allow the Holy Spirit to apply that to our lives as we figure out what it means to be brothers and sisters joining God's family and God's mission in the world. And so there's going to be a whole bunch of different themes that we'll walk through. Um, Myself, some of the other pastors and elders, as well as a couple guests over the next uh, 
two months or so. And I'm really excited to invite you on this journey. I would encourage you um, this week to go home and spend some time in the book of James. Kind of uh, even every week, read it through. It'll only take you 15 minutes or so. And um, kind of come prepared to engage uh, as we go through each part of the text. And so my question for us this morning simply has to do with one of these themes. um, That we don't want to live as hypocrites, right? And we all do have places in our lives that are still undeveloped that we still haven't yet been conformed to the life of Christ. And God knows that as a gracious father, he understands that there is this, this story, this journey, this process that we're in. And that's part of why we're here. It's part of why we need each other, is not to come and have all of our beliefs confirmed, but at times we need to come and have parts of our lives confronted. Right? And so the question I would leave you with this morning, is there one place that you sense that God is wanting to bring greater congruence or consistency between what you believe and how you live? Where's one place that the Holy Spirit might be leading you to pursue greater congruence or consistency between what you believe and how you live? And the point isn't to come down hard in judgment and works-based, but the point is to come saying, we have a gracious Father and a powerful Savior and a merciful Spirit who, for our good and for God's glory, wants to move us and grow us up towards wholeness and completion as followers of Christ. And so that's the journey we're going to begin on this morning. And I'm going to invite you to come to the table then as brothers and sisters at the family table of God, uh, to come together understanding our need for grace, our need for the power of the Spirit to convict us of our sin and to lead us into righteousness so that we can continue to be formed into the image of Jesus for his glory. Will you stand and pray with me? Lord Christ, our brother and our king. What an honor and privilege it is to be called your siblings. And we're grateful for the life that you've given us in you together. We believe that we belong to one another as those who belong to you. And so Jesus, we're asking that you would lead us on this journey of helping us to know and to love each other as you know and love us. God, that we would be a healthy, functional family. And that you would teach us what it looks like to live according to the patterns of your kingdom. We pray that our lives would be conformed to your image, that our faith wouldn't simply be what we say or what we think we believe but that our faith would be known by you living your life in and through us so that people can see, so the world can see who you really are. So thank you for your grace. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your open arms and the invitation to come and to be with you. We love you. We worship you. In Jesus' name.